Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian. My name's Aaron. My name's Justin. And we are super excited to have you back for our podcast this week. We are bringing in another former congressman, Congressman what? Jason Altmaier. I know, we are on fire with these former elected officials. We are a hell of a lot to talk to us about his uh, new book, Dead Center, actually, which talks about his time in Congress uh, as the statistically most moderate person in Congress. Uh, he has lots of great stories, so stick around for that. But yeah. He's going to talk to us a little bit. Of, uh, this is really interesting. He's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, how he was constantly courted uh, to be a swing vote on various different things. So we're, it's going to be cool. But before you do that, we have a couple of things that you need to check off your to-do list. First, follow us on all forms of social media. That Our handle can be found at flyonthewallpod. Yeah, uh, and subscribe on iTunes as well. Um, and for you Georgetowners, don't forget, we have the uh, drink of the month over at the Corp. Um what is it, Abby? The Buzz. The Buzz, yeah, The Buzz. That's the name of our, our it's custom like a, drink over there. It's a cinnamon honey latte. Cinnamon honey latte. So it's check pretty it good. Out. I actually had it today. Did you actually? Yeah, it was really good. Awesome. How much was it? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, okay. To do that. It's all flex dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I'm sure it's affordable, and I'm sure it's something that everyone should try. So definitely go out and get one of those. Great. So we're going to get started with our segments for the week. Uh, to start, our tweet of the week this week. Um, this is in honor of Halloween uh, this past Monday. Can I just say, I don't like Halloween. It's like my oh, least okay. favorite Okay, we'll, we'll save that for Grinder Goose. <laughs> um, so to get started, we have actually a, a tweet and an Instagram of the week. Tweet of the week is from Rep Joe Kennedy III, um, who tweeted his young daughter dressed up as Elmo. And he said, Ellie Mo is ready for some candy. Hashtag Halloween. Really cute picture there. It's pretty clever, um, actually. Our Instagram of the week, special Instagram of the week, comes from Representative Eric Swalwell of California, um, who says, Waddle, I do when this little penguin grows up. And it's him and his little five-month-year-old uh, actually in the house office buildings. Uh, I think he took uh, his kid around on Halloween. So check both those pictures out because you need to see them in person. Never stop working, I guess. Also, do we think their staffers came up with these puns or do we think they came up with them themselves? <sighs> That's a that's a grind our gears for another week, I think, also. <laughs> well, I think, do you think there's a correlation between congressmen who run their own Twitter and congressmen that come up with their own, like, puns and, and gimmicks and stuff like that? I don't think certainly. so. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, on that note, we'll be jumping into our grind our gears, and believe it or not, it is not a do congressmen come up with their own puns or <laughs> Halloween as much as I despise that holiday. <laughs> our topic is going to be something that is even more salient because it's coming up in just a few days. It is off-year elections. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, which you should if you live in Virginia or New Jersey, you have elections this week. On Tuesday, November 8th, 7th or 8th, I believe, um, you're voting for uh, governor, state senators, state legislators, school boards, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so we obviously encourage you to get out to vote. Um, but it's an abnormal year. It's 2017. Not many elections are held in this year. So we ask our flies, what grinds your gears about off-year elections? Okay, I'll start with this one. Um, so this one is specifically about Virginia's special election. Um, so as everyone knows, general elections for president last like basically two years, if not longer. Um, so for the last two years, I've had to look at advertisements uh, for various presidential candidates, um, which I understand. I get, you know, you got to get your name out there. Um, however, uh, since I live in D.C., I am also in the Virginia media market, oh. which means Every time I turn on a television uh, or try to watch the Dodgers lose in the World Series, Ooh. I am flooded with various advertisements for either Ed Gillespie or uh, Ralph Northam. Uh, and the thing is, 
number one, I do not live in Virginia, <laughs> so I don't vote for Virginia's uh, uh, Virginia's elections. And even if I did, uh, even if I was actually in Virginia, um, you know, it's kind of annoying. So sorry, I'm just going to Google the two of you and then decide how to vote. <laughs> uh, I'll jump in here. So my thing is that it just... It, these off-year elections are so inaccessible for so many people. When you get, you know, back-to-back, like, 2016-2017 election cycle, like, there are a lot of people that, like, A, don't even know that elections can happen on odd-numbered years, <laughs> which, like, news alert was me until, like, last year. Yep. Um, and two, uh, it's hard for people to, to make those sort of accommodations. There are a lot of people that need to plan long-term um, to get child coverage or to take off from work or to switch a shift. Uh, and they, uh, in, if they are not fully aware that there's an election, they sort of find out last minute. Um, or if they had to keep doing this like the next year after they'd just taken off the year before, uh, you know, it becomes a challenge for a lot of people uh, to get out and vote. So that's why I just feel like these election years are uh, really inaccessible, not a great system, and like, you know, lead to lower turnout than I think otherwise uh, we would have had, uh, which is a shame because gubernatorial races and um, local government are very, very important. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm going to kind of piggyback off of Aaron's uh, gear grinding. Um, it, I would be really curious to see the numbers on turnout for off-year elections. Unfortunately, we didn't do our homework. I don't have that sort of data for you right now. Um, but on top of just the fact that, yeah, people don't realize that there are elections in off-years, um, people are tired. Like, I think Christian's absolutely right in saying, that, like, yeah, like, these these TV ads get really, really annoying, and the lawn signs get annoying, and people knocking on your doors every single year gets to be really bothersome. And a lot of people, especially after 2016, have, I mean, you can call it election fatigue, I think. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate because it gets people kind of upset with the constant politicking that goes on. But real quick, silver lining on that um if you work in politics it's fantastic because you will always have a job opening because there's just constant elections uh wait hold on i did look this up 22 percent in 2015 was the new jersey turnout rate 22 percent it's that's not a lot lowest it's been since 1924 that's not that's real sad so if you live in either new jersey or virginia uh get out and vote uh very important yeah this tuesday uh all right we're going to transition into our conversation with congressman jason altmeyer uh, so a little bit of background on him. Uh, he was actually a healthcare executive, uh, worked on the Hill for a really long time um, in healthcare policy, uh, is considered a bit of a wonk and an expert. Uh, so we're going to talk to him a little bit about how he got into politics. Um, and then he's been a key swing vote in a couple of really cool rooms. Uh, for example, the 2008 superdelegate race. Uh, and then he was courted quite a bit for uh, his vote on Obamacare in 2009. Uh, so definitely check it out. It's going to be a really fascinating conversation from a guy who is constantly at the center of politics. And this is his first time visiting Georgetown University, so let's give him a nice, warm Hoya welcome. Congressman Altmaier, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have you here on Georgetown's campus. Uh, you're here actually for your book event, Dead Center. Right. Um, we are really excited to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, being a moderate in Congress. So. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. But first, as we were talking before, you said you've never really been to Georgetown's campus. So Hoya Saxa, hopefully we've given you a, a warm Georgetown welcome and we're excited to have you here for your first you time. You have. It's a beautiful campus. Thanks for your hospitality. I, I've always wanted to come here and it's nice to see all the things that go on. Of course. Great. 
Uh, so our first question for you, a uh, question we always ask people who end up in Congress is, you know, how'd you get your start in politics? This is an interesting story, I think, especially for students. I went to Florida State University for undergrad, and I was in my last class on my last day as a political science major, and I had already been accepted to law school in Pittsburgh, where I'm from. So mm -hmm. I was in college in Florida. I'm from Pittsburgh. And I had checked out of my apartment, I had my car packed up, and I had a summer job lined up. So I was going to walk from that class to my car and drive back to Pennsylvania. And as I was heading out the door, a professor looks up at me and says, Hey, Jason, come here, I want to ask you a question. And she said, there's a political campaign going on here in Tallahassee, a guy's running for Congress, the U.S. House. He's a Democrat running against the incumbent Republican. He has no chance to win, but I think you'd be good at it, and it would be good experience, and you should give it a shot. And I explained, well, I've got all these things lined up. It's, you know, I appreciate you thinking of me, but I've already set my plans. And she said, well, why don't you think about it? Because I, you can always do that other stuff later. This is really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so I thought about it on the way to the car, and I decided, yeah, I'm going to go for it. So wow. I went to work for the guy. His name was Pete Peterson, and I told you he was a candidate running for the first time for public office. He ends up winning the race, brought me up to D.C. with him, and started my whole career. I worked for him for six years in Washington. I had never been to Washington, D.C. before. And the kicker to that story is... On that campaign, for the first time, I met the woman who would become my wife. Aww. She was an undergrad at Florida State. So now we've been married for 27 years. We have, uh, or 21 years, uh, that was 27 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, we have two teenage daughters. And so, you know, the point of that story is my entire life would have been different if I had not taken that risk mm -hmm. of, you know, take take a an educated risk, you know, don't go crazy with it. But when, <laughs> when life presents you with opportunities, even if you think you know what you want to do, really big things can happen. Because if I hadn't taken that chance, I wouldn't have the same family life I have today. And I certainly would never have gotten into healthcare, which became my career. And I've had a pretty successful career at that. And I wouldn't have gotten into politics. I wouldn't have become a congressman. I wouldn't have ended up working in Washington. So all of that happened because that one professor on that one day happened to give me that opportunity. So connect those dots for us. So you, you started your career right out of college, you said, as an operative on that campaign and then in Congress. When did you decide, at what point were you like, this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to actually run myself. That actually came much later. I, I worked on Capitol Hill as a staffer for six years. And during that time, I was assigned health care as an issue. And I, uh, it was the end of the first President Bush and the beginning of the Clinton administration. And I was appointed to Bill Clinton's task force on health care reform. Uh, because I had been working on health care and because the congressman I worked for was active on the issue. So that's the point at which I had the career determination. I really like health care and I want to get into health care, not necessarily the politics of it. So I got a master's at night. I went to GW here in town, uh, got a master's in health administration. And then I moved from D.C. to go back to Pittsburgh to work for University of Pittsburgh Medical Center which is a big hospital system up in Pennsylvania. And I never thought that I would return to D.C. In, in an elected capacity. We thought that we were, my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, and we thought we were putting politics behind us. And it wasn't until 2004, 2005 that I started to think about running for office for the first time. But when we left D.C., I had no plans of, of ever, yeah, running for office. A couple of big life changes there for you. Yeah. 
so talk to us a little bit. Let's fast forward. Uh, in 2008, you were considered, you know, a key superdelegate swing vote uh, in that Democratic primary. Talk to us a little bit about what it was like to be in the room for that. You know, who was talking to you? Who was trying to swing your vote? How were they trying to swing your vote? I tell this story in great detail in my book um, because I, I think it's instructive on how these types of things happen. I was a freshman congressman in my first term. I represented a swing district in Pennsylvania, which, of course, was a swing state at the time. And, of course, then Senator Obama was running against then Senator Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton was the overwhelming favorite. And the way it played out was in February of 2000. Seven, so the election was 2008, uh, February 2007, Senator Obama invited, I think, everybody uh, to uh, join him. Uh, he was going to talk about his presidential ambitions down at the DNC, and about 20 people showed up because wow. everybody <laughs> assumed, and, and half of that was the Illinois delegation who knew him and were supporting him. Um, so really about 10 or 12 people that were kind of, you know, just interested to see what the, all the fuss was about. Uh, but everyone assumed Senator Clinton was going to win. She was way ahead, and Senator Obama was well known because of the speech he gave and was considered an up-and-comer, but I don't think a lot of people thought he was going to win or had a chance to win. But it was at that point he first reached out. Uh, Hillary Clinton did not reach out to people um, for support other than her inner circle within the Congress for about a year after that. So what happened in between was Senator Obama followed up, uh, continued to keep in touch. In June, he called me and asked me to support him as a superdelegate. To which I said, what, what's a superdelegate? You know, <laughs> we I, ask ourselves I, that every yeah, day. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even know. Uh, it turns out elected officials, members of Congress, have a vote at the convention that you're kind of a free agent. You don't have to do what your state or your district does. You can do whatever you want, support whoever you want. So that's what a superdelegate is. So he said, I'm really going to need you. And I said, well, look, the, the election is more than a year away. The convention's more than a year away. And we have... Uh, a front runner uh, who right now who's who's way ahead and it's not you, and we we also uh, it's very blunt. Well, I mean, I, I probably said it more discreetly, but <laughs> but we uh, you know we we have a race you know with, with two really good candidates, and I'm going to wait and see how it all plays out. And Pennsylvania's election wasn't until late April, and the Iowa caucus was in January. And I said, Pennsylvania is not going to be relevant to you at all. You shouldn't be worried about me. I don't know why you're asking for my support. And he said, it is going to be. It's going to be a really close race. It's going to go down to the wire. We're going to need you. So that's kind of a prelude. So he keeps in touch. And then in October, Michelle Obama was giving a speech in Philadelphia. And I was invited to that. And she took me backstage and explained that they were going to do really well in Iowa and New Hampshire. They were going to uh, run the table for the next several states because they had people on the ground and Hillary Clinton thought the race would be over at that point and really walked through exactly what would happen in in the campaign. Now, they lost New Hampshire, but then they went on a tear and he got so far ahead that Hillary couldn't catch up. So it was after all of that happened that Hillary first reached out and said she wanted to have my support as a superdelegate because at that point that was the only way she could win. But Senator Obama had already been working that angle for more than a year at that point. So she was hopelessly behind. And from that point forward, once we got to Pennsylvania in April, where the election, uh, the primary election played out, 
Uh, Bill Clinton called me and said he wanted to spend a day with me in my district, which we did. Wow. Senator Obama came in, spent a day with me in my district. Senator uh, Hillary Clinton invited me to her house with a group of undecided superdelegates, about 20 of us. Um, they really did everything they could possibly do to woo the people who were still on the fence in this whole thing. And I said throughout that I wasn't going to endorse anybody because I mm -hmm. think the superdelegate rule is stupid, and I still do. Because it just you shouldn't give more power to elected officials. Everyone should have the same vote and cast cast a vote. So I said I'm not going to make an endorsement, but they continued to persist. And again, I tell the story in more detail in the book. But the gist of it is, at the end, Hillary won my district by 31 points in wow. Western Pennsylvania. She won Pennsylvania, I believe, by 12 points. So she expected at that point that I was going to endorse her, and I didn't. Uh, I still stayed neutral, as I said that I would. And in the end, that ended up four years later, resulting in uh, Bill Clinton coming into my district and campaigning against me when I was put in a district through gerrymandering with another Democratic member of Congress. So they have very long memories about stuff like that. <laughs> no but kidding. it was definitely an interesting life experience. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've, no one courts me for votes. So <laughs> this is quite interesting, actually. Uh, and, a cool, and a cool story that, you know, people don't really hear a lot. This week's political fun fact is not about a president of the United States because Finally. Aaron keeps complaining about it. Uh, it actually comes from the United States Constitution. Uh, the United States Constitution in its original form had 4,400 words. It is the oldest and shortest written constitution of any major government in the world. Um, and the entire document only takes up about four pages. Uh, however, um, if you add all the amendments, it brings the total up to 7,500 words. Uh, which is really short if you think about it, because like I've written papers about that long. Um, and mind you, my papers are not the United States Constitution to set up an entire <laughs> really? government uh, with freedoms. But that's still a little crazy if you think about it. That's like, I, I don't feel like I could set up a government in any less than like 30,000. Don't sell yourself short, Christian. Your papers are great. So uh, shout out to the founding fathers, I guess. Senator Obama went on to win the presidency that year, um, which he told you all along he would. And uh, so did, I guess he was yeah. right there. He did. Um, and his signature piece of legislation was um, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Um, and you had a big part in this uh, in this act. But um, like you said a little earlier, your, you know, uh, your policy on health care goes really far back, back to President Clinton's health care task force. So talk to us a little bit about uh, what that was like being on that task force, you know, what kind of work you did. I was on a working group for long-term care, so nursing home, in-home care, things like that. They broke all these working groups out into specific issues, and the issue that I dealt with was long-term care. And that was in the beginning of 2017, or, or, or the beginning of 1993, 
and the vote on the bill in the House never occurred. The right. bill was introduced in May of 2017. It languished until the fall of that year, and then they got into 1994, and they just finally said, uh, I think I said 2017, but it was uh, 1993. And then in 1994, it... Uh, they just pulled it and said they can't they can't pursue it and so the task force was an interesting uh, policy experience and I was 25 years old um, still pretty new in my job so it, it was an interesting experience but it didn't amount to much as far as the bill but they learned a lot from that experience and the people like Rahm Emanuel who played a role in that when he worked for President Obama he didn't want to repeat the same mistakes and that's why they were able to get it passed the second time so that sort of that work serving on that task force is a very important part of your long-term career. Like you said, you went back to night school and got a degree in healthcare management, right? Yeah. Um, so when you came back uh, to Washington D.C. as a congressman, you were considered sort of an expert on healthcare policy. So when we were going through the steps of creating the Affordable Care Act, how did your expertise in that field give you an advantage or, or help you? craft that legislation. The great thing about serving in Congress is everybody's from somewhere else. They bring different geographic perspective, but everyone has different employment background too, professional experience. So when we dealt with agriculture pricing, farm subsidies, dairy, I didn't know anything about that. I'm from Pittsburgh, right? <laughs> so I needed people to come in and help me with that. But when you talk about issues that you know about that are your background, they bring you in and they, they ask questions. So I imagine when they're doing dairy pricing, they talk to the members from the farm states, right? And, and they play a role. Well, when we were talking about healthcare, I'm somebody that had a background in healthcare. So early on, they were asking my opinion, incorporating my points of view. I was on one of the committees of jurisdiction at the time and went through the markup process. And in the end, I had a very tough district. I had a swing district. I was a Democrat. The district leaned Republican, uh, generally elected Republicans in, in every other race, and had, had a Republican congressman before I ran. And uh, over time, it became clear to me my district wasn't going to be supportive of the bill. The bill wasn't taking the form that I would have liked some of the things that I wanted to see in there didn't make it. I did end up having three amendments that were in the final bill uh, when it became law. And then in the end, you have to think about the impact to your district. And the bill, when it went through the year-long process and we were in March of 2010 and the bill was brought forward, it didn't uh, help my district in the way that a lot of other districts saw benefit. I had more Medicare Advantage recipients than any other district in the country, number one out of 435. Wow. I had the fourth most Medicare recipients, just Medicare. And I had, paradoxically to what you might think about with Western PA, I, I had among the least number of uninsured of any district in the country. I had a lot of people on Medicaid, a lot of seniors on Medicare. And then I had the wealthy suburbs of Pittsburgh who were employed and had health care. So I didn't have a lot of uninsured. So basically what the bill did, because it cut Medicare Advantage by $150 billion, and I had more than anybody. It took money from my constituents and gave it to somebody else's constituents, which is a pretty hard sell to make when you go back to your district to explain why you made that vote. So in the end, I had issues with the bill. My constituents opposed it, and it it was going to hurt my district in the way I described. So I, I ended up voting against the bill, even though they had sought my advice throughout the process. 
So in the lead up to uh, the final vote on this bill, uh, you were one of the key swing votes, um, you know, being this moderate in Congress. So talk to us about how you were courted to vote yes or no on this bill. You know, who did you talk to? Who talked to you? Um, what were they trying to, you know, what were the best tactics they used? Yeah, this is a great story, and, and it's really instructive for folks who want to know how persuasion is used on Capitol <laughs> Hill, right, and with the White House. And I do tell this story in the book, too, so anyone who's interested can can see more of it there. But um, in the last, well, I was courted throughout, right, in the beginning, before the House took the first vote, because, you know, it passes the House and the Senate, and then you have the final vote. When it passed the House, Speaker Pelosi was the one who was doing the courting because it was a House bill at that point. So um, she would bring me into meetings and ask my advice and, and want to know what I needed to see in the bill to vote for. And she was doing this with, with anyone that was on the fence. Uh, eventually, I had to tell her towards the when we got to near the vote that I was not going to be able to support it. It passed the House the second time around when it was final passage in March of 2010. It was entirely President Obama. They really needed a heavy, the heavy hitter on this one. So um, a lot happened before this. Well, and a story I tell in the book, before the House passed bill, the day before the vote, President Obama called me, and it was um, the day after the Fort Hood shooting where 32 servicemen were killed in Texas by a gunman on, on, the, on the base. And he was in a really down mood. You could just feel because he had been dealing with that for a day or two. Um, so that just struck me that you know his his heart was in it, but but he was down. Uh, and and he gave me all the reasons why he thought I should vote for the bill. I told him I was leaning against it, was probably going to vote no. And and um, you know he he understood that, but but was encouraging me to to think about it. So that was the first time he had called about that bill. But then you get to final passage. So this is now in March. That was in November. This is now in March. And in the last three weeks leading up to the bill, I was invited to the White House five times, wow. and the president called me twice. And uh, I mean, I, I could tell you detail on, on each of them, but um, what I remember is uh, they invited me to a bill signing ceremony uh, uh, for a bill that in a rose garden, I was standing behind the president, and at the end, you know, he signs each letter with a different pen because he turns around and gives the pens to the people who were in the ceremony. And he went to grab the pens in the end, and Speaker Pelosi grabbed the pens from him and looked at me and said, I'll decide who gets the pens. Because, <laughs> you know, it was a keepsake, so she wanted to, like, if you want a pen, you've got to vote for the bill. So the day before the vote, uh, well, here's <laughs> That's just a, really funny. Here, yeah. Here's another thing that she did. So on uh, the, the day before the House vote, going back to November, a few months before, uh, I had presided as Speaker Pro Tem for over 100 hours during my freshman term. So now we're going into my, this was my second term when healthcare was being debated. I think I'd done about 160 hours total. And so I liked to do it. I liked to preside. She asked me to do it a lot. And she called me, even though I'd already announced I was going to be a no, and she said, I'd like for you to preside over the vote tomorrow. I, I think it would be good for you, and this is a historic vote, so why, why don't you uh, consider presiding? I said, well, I'm confused because it's my understanding if you preside, you're the designee of the speaker, and you're expected to 
vote the way the speaker would would want you to vote and she said oh yeah well of course if you, <laughs> if you preside you have to vote for the bill and i said well i'm not voting for the bill and she said well then you're not presiding <laughs> that's <laughs> a hardball by yeah. speaker pelosi <laughs> yeah so you know that kind of stuff happens but then you get to the end and at the white house the story i tell in the book that most people it's gotten the biggest reaction from people is uh well ooh, there's two of them what one is um there was this event in the blue room. It was a small reception for folks who were kind of on the fence. And he leaned into me, uh, the president, and kind of moved me away from where the group was. So it was just the two of us talking and really was very deep on the policy, knew what my concerns were, gave a very hard sell for why I should support the bill. And, you know, there was some politics involved in the pitch, too. And so I walked away and Rahm Emanuel came up who was a friend from his time in the house and was is a is now mayor of Chicago, but he's known for his um, his blunt approach. Let's put <laughs> it that way. And uh, he he really started to lay into me about why I needed to. And I and I started to express concern about this this uh, heavy-handed approach, right? That they were really going over over the top with with their persuasion techniques. And as Rom and I are going back and forth about this, Vice President Biden comes up to me from behind and puts his arms around my shoulder. And I'm talking about, I don't like this heavy-handed. <laughs> you know, and he, put, he grabs me with both arms and leans over. And in my ear, he says, if you just say yes, this all goes away. <laughs> just say yes. Oh, and and I just started to laugh because <laughs> it's just one thing after another. Another thing is they get everyone that um, they know has an influence upon you to call and con contact you in whatever way, visit your office. So people who gave you money in your campaigns, people they know are your personal friends. Senator Franken had done a fundraiser for me when I was first running before he was even in the Senate in Pittsburgh. So he called me and I tell the story in the book about, you know, some funny things that he said along the way. But one that sticks out for me is I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh, right? That's where my district was. And the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers was a guy named Dan Rooney. And he was ambassador to Ireland in the Obama administration, the U.S. ambassador. So he's currently during the story, he's the ambassador. And the vote was the weekend of St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day was in the middle of the week, and the vote was that weekend. So we're three or four days before the vote. And I'm not Irish. I had never been invited to the St. Patrick's Day party. And uh, for the first time, they invited me, and I kind of knew why, right? But <laughs> So I get there, and everyone is there, and, and Ambassador Rooney looks up at me and says, Hey, come here. I want to ask you something. And uh, I walked over, and he said, so and he he was a, just a great soft-spoken guy, and he he said, "So tell me, how how are you going to vote on this health care bill?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, you know, Ambassador, I've, they've had a lot of people talk to me, and I haven't made up my mind yet. I'm I'm leaning against it, but I I haven't decided." And he looked around to make sure that nobody was listening, and pulled me aside, and he said, "You know, in football and in life, I have found that if you just do the right thing." everything has a way of working out for itself. It'll all be okay if you just do the right thing. <laughs> and what he was telling me is, I don't really care what you do. <laughs> you do what you think is right. And, 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 I, and I told him, I said, of all the people they've had talked to me about this, you just made the most sense right. of anybody. And <laughs> that wasn't his intent. You know, His intent was just to say, look, this is your decision to do it. But they have everyone you can imagine. And so this, the last story that I tell 
is after I decided to vote no, I put out a statement, and I, you know, I went back and forth with Rom, and I get into all that in the book too. But the the hard hitting call came at the end of the day, on the Friday before the Sunday vote. President Obama called me after I'd already put my statement out, and he said, first thing he said was, "What's the matter? Didn't we give you enough attention?" Wow. Which is, you know, pointed. Po- yeah, pointed, given that I had been at the White House five times and yeah. a couple weeks before then. Um, and I said, look, I, I, I told you, which is true, and Rom, that I the attention wasn't going to make the difference for me. It was where my constituents are and what, what the impact of the bill is going to be on my district. I just, I, I'm not going to be able to support it. And he interrupted me. He said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to try to change your mind. That's what this is about. But I want you to think about something. I want you to think about what you're going to feel like on, and I, and I interrupted him. I said, oh, you mean on Sunday during the vote? And he said, no, 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 not during the vote. On Monday after you wake up and we've passed this and you're going to see every newspaper in the country with big banner headlines that we just passed the biggest social policy in the last 50 years. And then you're going to go into your office and you're going to see on the TV every station in the country is going to be talking about this monumental achievement that we just passed. And you're going to have to think about the fact that you weren't on the team. And I said, well, you're probably right. I will feel bad about that. But this is the right vote. And then I get to, you get to the vote on Sunday, and the vote occurs. It was a very close vote, but it passes. I voted no, and I tell a story about Michelle Bachman, who was a friend, but one of the more eccentric members of the House, right? And she came up, and she was crying, and her mascara was running down her face, and um, was saying, you know, thank you for, for voting no. You know, the, the country as we know it is now over. You know, things like that. And I was looking at her, and I was glancing over at my friends on the Democratic side who were hugging each other and high-fiving each other. And I thought about what the president had said, you know, how do you feel not being on the team? And I did at that point. It did strike me that, you know, yeah, he's right. I don't feel like I was on the team. But I do, I did feel, and I still feel today, that I did make the right vote for my district. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. Politico's As Real People this week comes to us from former Health and Human Services Secretary and former member of the House of Representatives, Tom Price, who uh, made a return to his old stomping grounds yesterday. Um, And actually, as he was entering the Cannon House office building, uh, bumped into a few of the Capitol Police, uh, his old Capitol Police buddies, uh, who apparently were very excited to see him. They uh, had a nice reunion, gave each other big hugs, stuff like that. Shout out Politico for giving us that Politico's As Real People. That's like really cute. I like to see. I can like see this in my head. This is where I interned over the summer. Was that entrance or over the spring semester? So like I I can envision that happening. And those guys are homies. Like those. Oh yeah, they're fantastic. Um, So I could totally see this happening. That's really cool. So we're going to move a little bit into uh, we have a hot take for you, which is where we bring on a student um, and we ask him a question 
and we would he, we have him respond and then we'd like you to respond to his response sure. uh so we asked brendan eberts who's the president of the bipartisan coalition here at georgetown um how does being a moderate benefit you and or your constituency as an elected official in 2017 so i think the overarching answer is that uh being a moderate changes the expectations of your constituents and other representatives in a way that enables compromise, dialogue, and better policymaking. I do think it's necessary to uh, break the question up into its two components, um, how being a moderate is beneficial to the constituency and how being a moderate is beneficial to the politician himself. Uh, I think that the current state of American politics um, means that the constituency has even more to gain from a moderate representative than the rep has to gain from his or her status. Uh, though it's ultimately good for everybody in the long run. Uh, when a congressperson has a reputation as an ideologue, their hands are tied. Uh, they have higher expectations to not budge in ideological or partisan issues. They have higher consequences from party members, special interest groups, and uh, partisan voters if they do budge. Meanwhile, moderates, on the other hand, uh, have an expectation of nuance from the constituency, and this nuance can allow them to fulfill their duties as policymakers instead of partisan grandstanders. Uh, within Congress itself, a reputation as a moderate also grants legitimacy to a congressperson uh, when it comes to bipartisan interaction or acting as a congressional committee. It's from those benefits of nuance that allow a moderate congressperson to do their job that benefits a constituency. Congressman, your response. When I was in office, the National Journal, uh, I think every year, uh, does vote rankings where they do a statistical analysis of the voting record of every member of Congress and then a mathematical calculation of how they rank against each other, liberal to conservative. So the mo they rank them from most conservative to most liberal. I was found to be in the exact center. <laughs> yeah. I was in the middle. So I had 217 members to my left and 217 members to my right. And that's why the title of my book is Dead Center, because mm -hmm. that's where I was. So this is a subject that I'm, I'm very interested in, and that, that's why I wrote the book. Um, the problem is in Washington today, you get no political benefit from being a centrist. And the reason we have so much polarization in Washington, the reason we have so much gridlock, and there's so much frustration in the country over the lack of progress that's being made in Washington and the inability of members of Congress to work together uh, on anything, that frustration is driven by the fact we don't have many centrists left on Capitol Hill. We have very few. And if you don't have centrists, you're not going to be able to have compromise. And unfortunately, in Washington today, compromise is a dirty word. You're punished for compromising by your party. And we have a primary system with closed primaries where the political extremes dominate the voting bloc, the electorate in primaries. And if you are perceived to be somebody who works with the other side or is open to other points of view, you're punished for it at the ballot box. So I think the country would benefit greatly to the students' um, comments there. The country would benefit greatly by having more centrists, more independent-minded people in the Congress. But unfortunately, the political downside to that is you're very likely to be challenged both in the primary and in the general election. You really have to choose your poison. Are you, are you going to um, choose to irritate people who, are, who can beat you in the primary or in the general? Uh, so it, it's, uh, it, it's a double-edged sword. But I do hope that we're going to find a way to bring more moderation and more centrists into Congress. 
Well, we are quickly running out of time with you, so we want to make sure we fit in at least one of our special tradition. We have a lightning round at the end of every yeah. episode, so we're going to ask you one quick question. You have like 10 seconds to respond. First thing off the top of your mind, uh, and the question is, what congressional perk do you miss the most? Uh, it's not a perk, but I miss the camaraderie. I miss my friendships and being able to see uh, my friends uh, who are in elected office. You learn about what's happening around the country. It's really interesting. That's a sweet story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Congressman Altmaier, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, I think you've you've brought a lot of insight into how Congress actually works, and so this was this was great. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, for Thanks again me. for mis- uh, visiting Georgetown. And if anyone wants to pick up your book, it's Dead Center by Congressman Altmaier. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast this week featuring Congressman Jason Altmaier. Uh, we are excited to have our third or fourth Ele- fourth, I think elected, we've said it. yeah. Fourth former elected official here on the podcast. So many, it's hard to count. You know, we're we're big time now. <laughs> I know. We're just we're we're rolling in the formers out here. Yeah, we really appreciate the stories he told about getting quartered on healthcare, his experience um, devising healthcare, and really how he got started. Um, all really all random, all random. So still hold out hope if you don't know what you want to do with your future. <laughs> or I if you- wish. I wish someone would court me to vote on something, <laughs> right? You know, like have me over to the White House for a nice dinner. I was gonna say, inspirationally for you seniors out there, you don't need to have a job until exactly. your last class on your last la- day yeah, of school. Walk, there you go, walking out to your car to leave campus. Also, apparently, graduation is optional. So. <laughs> <laughs> don't have to go to that. Good to know. Uh, so, if you guys haven't already, uh, subscribe to us on all the various social media platforms at Fly on the Wall Pod. Uh, send us an email. Uh, fly on the wall podcast at gmail.com. You could also send us personal emails if you know our net ID is at Georgetown. Uh, it's also on the Geopolitics website. Shout out Liam for tossing us an email. Uh, great guy, longtime friend of the pod, and we will be meeting up with him uh, later today to discuss uh, some politics and stuff. Yeah, uh, so next week we're going to have a couple of really cool episodes. Um, well, not just, we'll have a lot of episodes in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be really cool. Um, you guys are definitely going to want to check it out. Um, we will have some really awesome people on this podcast. So tune in next week to find out who we have. Yeah, we look forward to seeing you then. Have a great week, guys. So Christian, when you get to utter five words to President Bill Clinton tomorrow, what do you say to him? If you get five words with the former president of the United States, like what do you say? He's counting. He's still counting. As, as we know, Christian isn't great at math. Okay, ready, go. Go. Come hang out with me. Come hang out with me. Hey, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I feel like it's a good, quick message. Uh, if, I w- if I were to try to do anything like political or just like a thank you for your service, I feel like that's not fun. Um, but if I just say like, coming out with me, I feel like, you know, Bill's a nice guy. Catch him off guard, yeah. Yeah, he'd be like, whoa, this guy's cool. He's fun. <laughs> uh, and he'll come hang out with me. So, President Clinton, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs>